Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. Delighted to have you with us. Caregiver SOS On Air comes to you Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Carol Zernio, as many of you know, is a well-known, nationally recognized gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, and serves as executive director of the national organization. The WellMed Charitable Foundation. WellMed Charitable Foundation. Wow. You guys are both counting down and pointing, and I, I, I know, got it's distracted. Co- it's confusing with all that counting. Executive we were just wondering director. how many titles I really had. Yes, and a graduate of Trinity University right here in San Antonio. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. We've got a great guest coming up because a whole lot of folks have yet to take care of what we all ought to take care of, and that's have an advanced directive. Yeah, this is probably one of the most important topics, and it and it's for anybody. We tend to think of advanced directives as something for older people. It's for our parents. When you think of all the court cases involving people and the right to die, most of those involved someone younger. So, you know, advanced directives, letting people know how you want to live your life and how you don't want to live the end of your right. life is so important. So this is a great topic. And Paul Malley will join us talking about five Wishes. That's coming up in just a couple of moments. But first, one of those great questions that boggles the mind, if wine is good for you, and in moderation it can be, why not grapefruit juice? Or just regular grape juice. Or grape juice, yes. Grape Grape juice. juice. Well, you know, I've actually thought about this question before. It crosses my mind. Why do they say wine is good for you? Why aren't we all drinking grape juice? Somebody asked the New York Times. Thank goodness. So now we have an official answer to this question. And it's actually, it's the fermenting process, right? So apparently eating a grape is one thing and drinking the grape juice but when you ferment the wine, the grape juice into wine, that skin, especially in red wine, stays longer in the juice, and it releases all the good things that are in the skin. Huh. Um, and it's those chemicals that are the ones that are good for you, whereas grape juice tends to be higher on the sugar side, right. which is not so good for you, and doesn't have as many as the good chemicals. And I could pronounce, I could pronounce them maybe, but I'm going to spare you all that scientific blah, blah. Now, supposedly it's red wine that's better for you than white wine. Well, it is, and that's because red wine has, this, is, the, has the skin on it. Right. That's what makes oh. it red. So... 86, the grape juice, go for the wine. Well, grape juice, um, they're saying, you know, a small amount, think Dixie cup, little Dixie cup. If you remember those? Do Tiny. They, do they make Dixie cups anymore? I remember I don't even kid. know. And, oh, yeah. blue was my favorite. I couldn't, you know, I would do anything, get behind three other people in line for, for the blue, blue cup. For a blue Dixie yeah, cup, right. Cup. Um, so, yeah, grape juice is okay, but actually wine in moderation is better. And I don't know what to say. That makes me happy. Lots of folks concerned about cancer. It seems like every week there's a new theory, a new approach, a new treatment. Uh, and, and the latest that, that you've discovered is free-floating DNA, which means... Well, 
it's a fascinating concept, I have to say. This, again, is from the New York Times. So, all right, we all know what DNA, the little, we've all seen Jurassic Park, so we know what DNA is. It's the little strands, the code that makes you who you are. Well, apparently, not all of DNA is attached to those little spindly strands. Some of it, as cells divide, it breaks off, gets an inner tube, and goes floating around by itself. Through your bloodstream. Through your bloodstream. So let's say you have cancer. Well, so when those cancer cells, we know that's what causes cancer. It's those bad cells, you know, take over the cell and they divide and they divide and they divide. Well, some of them break off and are floating around. So what they're saying now is by looking at free-floating DNA, this, you know, some smart geneticist scientists um, have discovered that they can figure out you have cancer by looking at the free-floating DNA. Uh, The problem has been, okay, where is it? You know, if we can find it in the bloodstream, where did it originate? They're starting, they've got a long way to go, but they're starting to be able to pinpoint what type of cell it used to be living in or where it got created in the first place. Um, So that's optimism in the scientific community that looking at free-floating DNA, which is DNA that's broken off, um, can detect cancer, maybe some other diseases, but particularly cancer is the one that's big because obviously that it's all about cell division in cancer. If you've just joined us, uh, this is Science 101. What? You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The Answer, Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. If they can figure out where that cancer originated, uh, you then, I guess, could have a blood test to screen for cancer, make it a lot quicker to treat, diagnose, and treat. Well, that's it. it. It would be so much faster and less invasive because it's not just in your bloodstream. It's also in your saliva and your urine. You know, those are all pretty easy tests uh, to have done, and, and, and actually, they tend to be more accurate. Really? Well, you're not going to get a false positive on DNA. It's DNA. That's true. So that's, you know, it's very promising. And that beats waiting until uh, the cancer grows and grows and grows to cause a problem that lets you say, hey, I got a problem here. Right. And if you have cancer in your family, that would be a great way to say, is it showing up yet? Um, And be able to get it checked easily. So you could get screened every year. Theoretically, yes. Yeah. Well, I like that. Now, this is a problem that many, many families have faced. They have reached a point where uh, mom or dad, aunt or uncle, someone uh, really can't be cared for at home anymore. They need to go into either assisted living or nursing, and it turns out they hate it. They just don't like hate it. it. Yeah, they don't like it. Or, you know, you, you maybe you work w- in one of those kinds of facilities. So um, there is a study, I'm trying to see where it came from, uh, from senior, it was in the Senior Housing Magazine. Uh, that was talking about residential care and how people are happy or unhappy. And they say there's two aspects to, to somebody being happy in a residential facility, like in assisted living. So one of those is the residential comfort, which, as you probably can guess, is, you know, is the place comfortable? Is it hassle-free? Is it pleasurable? You know, does it feel good? That, that one's pretty easy. Uh, but the second piece is... How do they feel in that residence? So do they feel like they're in control or do they feel like their whole life has just been taken away from them? And you can imagine for a lot of people just moving in, it's probably that. I'd go for window two. Yeah, window two. So what's interesting is if um, you know people are feeling out of control uh, and dissatisfied, 
the co- the people who are coping going to cope well. One is they're going to try to do something about it. This is my great aunt in a facility in New Mexico who has decided the food is bad and darn it, she's not going to take it anymore. So she has been on a crusade since she moved in to help improve the food in her facility. Now she's also working on the loud sound and noises bouncing around in the dining room. But dining is going to be a better experience because of her. So there are those that do something about it. That helps you adjust and makes you more successful. Um, The other people are going to say, you know what? Eh, Food wasn't that great at home either. I don't need good food. I don't care if it's loud in the dining. So those that lower their expectations, which kind of sounds like selling out, but... I can think of a time when we had to move into a rental house that was not nearly as nice as the one before. College kids had been living in it, full of cockroaches. Oh, it was a mess. It was a mess. But I'm like, okay, if I get this cleaned up, doesn't have to be as good as the last one. It'll do. It's not for the rest of my life. So I've lowered my expectations. Um, so that that's those are coping skills. So when you're working with someone who's unhappy in a facility, what you want to do is find out, number one, you know, can you help them to either do something about it? Can you help them adjust in a way that, you know, is this really the important deal breaker kind of thing? Or can I do something to help them feel more in control? Can I give them more options about their environment when they have a bath, you know, when they get up? And those are the kinds of things more and more facilities are trying to do anyway. So it really is letting that person in the facility have more control those are the kinds of things that lead to more successful So, so do things stays. on the residence schedule and yeah. not the home's schedule. Right. So you're empowering them to be able to have options. So, you know, maybe I can't give you a bath at 2 in the afternoon, but you could either have a morning bath or an evening bath. Mm-hmm. So working with them to give them a little bit of control. And finally, because that causes a lot of stress both for the people who are dissatisfied and for the folks working in in that community. Uh, What about coping with stress? You've got some tips on uh, how to deal with it because it can really be a killer. Well, long-term stress, as we know, is like having a tiger chasing you and you never get off the treadmill with a tiger chasing you. It's bad for you and it hurts your immune system. So the University of California, San Diego, has been looking at this, and what they're finding is that it's, you know, when dealing with stress... The people that deal with it most successfully listen to their body. And to get there, they studied people who are like Navy SEALs or Special Forces, those people that are doing crazy, dangerous things. Um, And yet they go back and do it again and again and again, and they don't just freeze up and burn out necessarily. And what they found is, yes, their heart's racing. Yes, there's adrenaline. Yes, there's stress. But they recognize it. And they try to control it, and it's because they listen, they, they feel, what is stress doing to me? And they quell oh. that feeling, and it puts them more in control, and it shows their stress dissipates. It goes away much more quickly. So you and I just need to, you know, get our special ops on. And listen to our bodies. And listen to our bodies. Or watch the new Elmo Potty Time video for kids, which has a whole segment on listen to your bodies. Because that's when you know you got to wow, go. Wow, and I would have never come up with that as a stress-free that recommendation. Something? That's pretty cool. Almost potty time. Well, I, come to my world. We watch it almost every day on the way to wow. early childhood. Excellent. Excellent viewing. Coming up next, speaking of excellent, Paul Malley joins us, president of Aging with Dignity. He's going to give us the inside scoop on five wishes. 
Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal? To support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. And a little interlude of soft, delightful music here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we are delighted to welcome to our Caregiver SOS hotline Paul Malley, who serves as president of Aging with Dignity, a national nonprofit based in Tallahassee, Florida. And uh, Paul Malley, thanks for coming on with us. Thanks, Ron. It's good to be with you. Well, we're delighted to have you here, and uh, there are a few topics when you deal with aging especially, but it doesn't only apply to aging, but when you deal with folks, uh, end-of-life planning is something most of us avoid like the plague. Why is that? Well, you know, I, I think you're right. It's one of those topics that we don't like to talk about, and I, I think for a lot of us, a lot of our families, the thought is, if I talk about it, it just might happen, so let's just not talk about it, and, uh, and if we don't, then it might not happen to us. But, but the reality, of course, is that it's something that touches every one of us, all of our families, maybe even not so much focusing on that moment at the end of life, but what it means to be a good caregiver, what it means to care well for the people who we love when they're very sick. And uh, oftentimes when families are in that situation, they find themselves in the middle of a crisis and they've never talked about it, so they don't know what to do. And you and your organization, uh, Aging with Dignity, uh, have come up with the pretty neat document called Five Wishes. That's right. It's, uh, it's an easy-to-use document, just a few pages long. And uh, the idea is that it's something that every adult, um, everybody 18 and over, can sit down with together as a family. You can fill it out in your living room or around the dining room table around the time of the holidays or time when people are gathered together as a family and talk about what's most important to you. What, would you, what you would want if you were living with a serious illness and your family had to make decisions for you, and so that you can talk to your family, whether it's parents or grandparents or even adult children, to say, if I have to make decisions for you, what would you want me to decide, whether it's about health care treatment or who makes your decisions for you or the type of care that you receive. 
Well, so what has changed, do you think, um, in terms of the acceptance? I know that I hear about the five wishes because I go to many aging conferences and work in this world. And I, it went from never having heard of it to hearing about the five wishes everywhere. I see it in emails. Um, and suddenly this idea has really caught on. Does this have anything to do with the, the politics and death panels that came out of CMS? Or do you think it's just time and people are finally getting rational about this idea? Well, you know, Carol, I think that it's great to hear that you're hearing more about it, uh, and we're seeing the same thing. Uh, Five Wishes has been in existence now for, um, it's going on 20 years. It's not quite there yet, but it was started as a grassroots movement, uh, and as you mentioned, we're based in Florida, so it began in Florida, but has now spread around the country, and we know that thousands of Providers, doctors, physician groups, hospitals, hospices have been using it for a long time. But the reason that the word spread, I think, and from what we've heard, is from individuals and families who have used it and said, this makes sense to us, we understand it, it helps us to have the important conversation with our family and relay what's important to our doctors. So so as far as what's moving the needle, uh, I think families and individuals are more um, open to talking about it. And one of the main reasons that I think for that is that uh, families have been involved in caring for loved ones more often. Um, baby boomers have cared for their parents. And now we're hearing from so many who call our office and say, I had to make decisions for my own parents and I didn't have a clue what they wanted. My siblings were divided on what to do and I don't want my own kids to have to experience that same thing. So I want to take an action. I want to put my wishes down in writing to make sure that my kids don't have to make those same difficult decisions without any instructions from me. So I think a part of the reason is just by by experience, families seeing kind of the good and the bad. They see how bad it can be if families are left to make all these decisions on their own and how good it can be and, and peaceful if uh, if the family members give one another some guidance. Well, what I like about the tool is that you've called it Five Wishes, which makes it so much more accessible. You know, we don't necessarily think about wishes and and end-of-life decisions, but the fact that you call it Five Wishes and people think about that, I wish, you know, at the end of my life, what's the perfect death for me, um, you know, is I think it makes a huge difference in the ability to have these conversations. I think that's true. And... uh and that's what we wanted. You know, a lot of times when people would jump over the hurdle of, of just barely thinking about or talking about advanced care planning or giving instructions to their loved ones, they look at the legal documents or the medical documents out there and hear things like durable power of attorney for health care and living wills and advanced directives and, uh, and not know how to make heads or tails of it. So one of our main intentions was to create a resource that uh, everybody felt like they were, uh, they were credentialed or empowered to use. So in other words, you don't have to have a, a law degree or a medical degree to be able to understand Five Wishes, because you as an individual, together as a family, you have the right to make these decisions on your own in terms that are meaningful to you and in terms that you understand. And, and I think that's what sets Five Wishes apart from other documents that may be focused on the legal or the medical jargon. And for those who uh, would like to uh, play the home game of Five Wishes, uh, do they need the hard printed copy or 
through your organization, Aging with Dignity, uh, you have an online service as well. That's true. There are a few ways you can get it. Uh, on the website at agingwithdignity.org, you can um, begin to use an online version, Five Wishes Online, where you can fill out your answers on the screen and then print out a, a printed document that you would still sign, and you have to have two people witness your signature as well. So there are a few legal steps that have to be included, and we give you the instructions and what to do for that. Um, and we can also send out to you a hard copy, uh, a paper document that you can fill out. And there, as I mentioned, too, there are a lot of hospitals and doctor's offices that provide five wishes to their patients. So a lot of times people hear about it for the first time because their doctor gave it to them or their health plan sent them a document in the mail. Um, but even if you haven't had one of those um, introductions to Five Wishes, you can get it for yourself and get it for your family. Tell us about your organization, Aging with Dignity. Uh, you've been with them for a while, and, and now uh, as it begins to get more and more attention across this country, folks may have heard of Five Wishes, but they don't know who you are. That's true. We are actually celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. We were founded 20 years ago by a man named Jim Tui. And Jim was legal counsel to Mother Teresa of Calcutta. He worked with her and the Sisters and Missionaries of Charity, not only on legal issues, um, but he served and lived as a live-in volunteer in, uh, in her home for the dying, first introduced to the home for the dying in Calcutta, and then lived for over a year at the Missionaries of Charity home in Washington, D.C., that at the time uh, was a home for men with AIDS in the 1980s. And his experience in working with Mother Teresa is what really inspired him to found Aging with Dignity with a focus on honoring and safeguarding the human dignity of every person, and especially looking at instances where that dignity is most vulnerable. And of course, one of the main places that we see that dignity is vulnerable is during times of serious illness and at the end of life. So often, people, as they're living with that serious illness, they feel like they're all alone, even if they have people all around them. They feel like they're alone. They may feel like they're on a healthcare conveyor belt where they're just moving along. And what they want is to be comfortable, to sometimes have their hand held, to be prayed with, to be at home if that's possible. And we saw all these things registering as this is what people care about. This is what's most important. And those things of comfort and meaning and relationships we're often not included in most advanced care planning discussions. So and, and the medical that's why we created five. You know, the medical system isn't really created to deliver those uh, wants either, unless you uh, ask for them and, in some cases, demand them. That's right. And and what we also hear from healthcare providers is that there's a strong desire to provide this type of person-centered care and dignified care. That's why most healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, administrators, that's why they got into healthcare from the beginning, was because they had a desire to provide dignified care. Uh, but so often, you know, in, in the, the, um, the race to provide urgent medical care, uh, which is so important, there's, there's just so much to focus on and so much to fill a person's radar. And that's why we think it's, it's really important that individuals and families say, these are the things that are most important to me. And yes, I want the best medical care possible, uh, but I also want to be treated and make sure that my human dignity is honored and maintained during times of serious illness. And 
here's how you can do that. Now, if you've just joined us, Paul Malley, who you're listening to, is president of Aging with Dignity down in Tallahassee, Florida. They're the folks who make available five wishes for advanced directive in determining how you want to leave this world. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Uh, Paul, did uh, Jim Toohey uh, tell you much about uh, Mother Teresa? Did you get to know Jim? I did. I, I worked for him for a few years, and then uh, he went on and was a, an assistant to the president. He worked in the White House for a few years, and now he's a, a university president of Ave Maria University in South Florida. But you know, he he has amazing stories to tell uh, about his encounter with Mother Teresa. And the first time that he met her, she actually asked him to visit her home for the dying in Calcutta. And, uh, and he did that the next day, and it was that experience and being by the bedside of someone who is very sick and in the last day of that person's life, that experience changed the course and the trajectory of his life, and that's why Aging with Dignity is here, and that's why Five Wishes exists. It's pretty interesting. And his, he's obviously carried on that experience by becoming a president of the university you indicated. That's right. That's right. And, you know, the thing that the common thread with Mother Teresa's work and her missionaries of charity, and I had the chance just a couple of years ago to visit Calcutta and to go to this home for the dying, which is really the inspirational birthplace of our organization. And you see there uh, that people are welcomed with love, uh, no matter what their state, no matter what their uh, religious or their ethnic background, and um, and it's very diverse in that part of India, near Bengal. Um, but they're 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 cared for, they're received with love, and uh, and each person, they may have have lived very difficult lives on the street in Calcutta, but in that moment, their their human dignity is honored, uh, and they're really they're really cared for as an angel would be in those last moments of life. Now and stay with us. beautiful to see. Stay with us, Paul Malley, President of Aging with Dignity. We're going to come right back at you and talk more about Five Wishes and find out a little more about uh, the organization Aging with Dignity. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Uh, this is Caregiver SOS On Air. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. We're so pleased you are sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Dr. Jamie Heisman joins us in just a few minutes for Take 10, the conclusion of every one of our Caregiver SOS programs. We take 10 and spin around and talk about a topic of great interest to caregivers and others. We're talking with Paul Malley, who is president of Aging with Dignity. They are the folks who bring you five wishes and uh, some 25 million people, according to Aging with Dignity, have already uh, used it and found it to be helpful. Carol Zerniel? Well, tell us a little bit about five wishes. What does that mean? If I pull down this document, do I get five wishes? Describe it a little. Sure. So it's, it's a document that's broken into five different sections. And uh, what this is all focused on is your preferences for how you would want to be cared for if you're very sick, if you're seriously ill, and you're no longer able to make your own medical decisions. So the first wish, for example, it lets you name someone who you trust to be what we call a healthcare agent. 
It could be a family member. It could be a close friend. Uh, someone who you trust to be able to understand what your wishes are and be your voice for you if you're no longer able to speak for yourself. Uh, as I mentioned, that's sometimes called a health care agent. Sometimes it's a durable power of attorney for health care. There's some different legal uh, descriptions of it, but it's basically naming a person to be your voice if you're not able to speak for yourself. Right, and I did see on your website that this is a legal document that's accepted in 42 states. That's right. We worked with the American Bar Association, the Commission on Law and Aging at the ABA, to look at the state laws in all 50 states. And right now, Five Wishes meets the legal requirements by itself as an advanced directive in 42 states. So there are eight that still have what we would call a mandatory form requirement. So uh, in Texas, for example, there's a required state form for the designation of a durable power of attorney for health care. So we still work with a lot of individuals and hospitals in Texas, and what they do is they combine Five Wishes with that required state form. So Five Wishes is used in all 50 states. In 42 states, it meets the legal requirements on its own. And in eight states, uh, there's a step two, and that step two is just making sure that you combine it with your state form. Now, there's a nominal charge for either the hard copy or the online version? That's right. Um, $5 for the individual documents, uh, if you just want one document sent to you. For individuals or small groups, if you get 25 or more, uh, for your family or for your place of worship or workplace, uh, 25 or more are only a dollar each. Well, that- so it's... That sounds cheaper than an attorney. <laughs> yeah, you know, our our goal is just to, to make it available for people who uh, who will benefit from it. And uh, and as a nonprofit organization, that allows us to continue the project, continue the mission, and, uh, and make it available to whoever needs it. And throughout our history, we've um, also made it available at no cost for those uh, for whom a dollar is is prohibitive, and that happens all the time. And whenever somebody lets us know that, we we send the document out to them. So that's in the spirit that of Mother Teresa. That's, that's great. So so part one is you've designated someone who will understand how you want to have your wishes carried out. That's right. And then wish two gets a little bit more specific about the types of medical treatment you'd want or not want if you're near the end of life. So it asks questions about life support treatment, when you'd want it or not want it. And what you're doing here is giving instructions to your healthcare team and also to your healthcare agent, the person that you named in Wish One, on making decisions for you if you're not able to speak for yourself and, uh, and you're receiving life support treatment. Should, should that continue? Should it be stopped? That's the record that you're creating here in Wish Number Two. And those are really, those first two wishes are the most important answers that you're giving to your healthcare team. Wishes three, four, and five are really about care preferences, how you want to be treated, how you want to be cared for. These are the parts of the document that set it, a, set it um, apart from many of the standard advanced directive forms because it lets you say, I don't want to be in pain and I want my pain managed. I'd like to have people with me. Uh, I want to be cared for with respect. Here's how I want to be remembered. I want my family to know that I love them or to forgive them. These types of things that oftentimes when we ask people what's most important to you if you're seriously ill and near the end of life, 
these are the things that are at the tops of most people's minds. And that's why we put it in five wishes. And quite frankly, now, many years later, it's those later wishes, three, four, and five, that we hear the most comments about from family members who said, I'm so grateful my mom or dad filled out five wishes because when they were sick, we knew exactly what to do, not just on the medical side, but uh, you know, something as simple as uh, I remember one woman said that her husband asked for pictures of his grandchildren to be in the room. And he wrote that in his five wishes. And she said, it just felt so good to do something as simple as that and know that I wasn't just doing it because I wanted to do it, but I was doing it because that's what my husband wanted enough to write it down. And that's what caregivers always want to do. They want to do right by their loved one. They want to provide the best care. But so often they don't know what that means. So that's why Five Wishes really turns into an instruction book for what good care means to that individual. Carol mentioned uh, quite accurately that obviously it's a lot uh, less expensive to do this than go to an attorney to prepare an advanced directive. Have you had any kickback from the legal community, or, or do they embrace this? We found that they embrace it. Uh, there are attorneys all around the country that actually use Five Wishes as part of their offering um, to their clients. Certainly, those individuals who have attorneys, we, we certainly suggest that if they fill out Five Wishes that they bring it to their attorney and ask that it be included in their legal paperwork. Uh, there have been some instances where attorneys have, have questioned a few, uh, a few parts of a document or interpretation of a document, uh, but in all cases they've been resolved and we've always run any questions by the American Bar Association and out of 25 million documents there's never been one instance of a person's wishes being denied because the form was not believed to be valid. So out of 25 million, not one instance of it being declined because there was a, a problem with the, the legal validity of the form. So once you've gone through the document with your family, then what happens with the document? What do you do next? Then once you've signed it, dated it, and had two witnesses, uh, you should make copies of it and give it to your family. Make sure that the person who you named in Wish 1 is your health care agent. Make sure you especially talk to them and make sure they're willing to be your health care agent and that they understand what you've said in Five Wishes because they're going to be on the front lines. They're going to be your voice if you're not able to speak for yourself. And then bring it to your doctor on your next visit. Uh, your primary care physician, if you have a, your annual medical Medicare checkup, uh, an annual exam, or if you're just going in for another a consultation on another issue, bring your copy of Five Wishes and ask to talk about it. Tell your doctor that you've filled out an advanced directive, that you'd like to talk about it, and that you'd like it to be included in your, uh, in your medical chart. We're talking with Paul Malloy, president of Aging with Dignity, here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Paul, you mentioned what often becomes a a problem for uh, a family. You, you fill out five wishes. You, you have it all laid out carefully. Uh, crisis hits. Mom, dad, grandpa goes to the hospital, and no one can get their hands on that document. Mm. That's true. So, so in, what we would encourage all families to do is to take the steps to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, we've heard those horror stories, not so much with five wishes, but sometimes with other uh, 
other paperwork or legal documents mm-hmm. that people put in their bank safe deposit box. Right. And nobody can nobody get has to the it. Key, right. You know, what to do? And they don't have a key or a passcode. Lock and key or just stash somewhere. Yeah. You don't want to hide it. Uh, and you want to make sure this isn't something you want to keep a secret. You want to tell people that you filled out the document, and whether it's a spouse or your parents or your adult children, make sure they know where to find the original. Uh, and that might be in a folder in your closet or in a top dresser drawer, someplace that's accessible. And also make sure that it's in your medical record. If you're uh, with a doctor who has an electronic patient portal or a medical record, it should be in there. Uh, if it's still a paper paper trail, then you can make a copy and it can be in your medical record so that if there is a crisis, it follows you to the hospital. Uh, but make sure your family knows about it. That's, that's one of the things that often results in a crisis at the bedside or in an emergency department is if a family all comes to a hospital because somebody's in the middle of a health crisis and they hear about an advanced directive for the first time and they, don't, they never talk to mom or dad about it. Uh, so filling out the document is part of the task. The second part of the task that's at least as important is telling your family that you've done it and explaining the, your decisions to them so that they hear it from you. Uh, that, that increases the likelihood that your wishes will be honored and your family won't be left to wonder, well, I, I now see mom filled out this document, but did she really mean it? Did she understand what she was signing when she signed it? the conversation can alleviate that gray area in those questions. Yeah, I think that's a terrific point because that is when you've got, you know, the relatives that lived out of town, it could be a brother or a sister, maybe the family have talked to the children, but they didn't talk to their siblings. Right. And brother or sister comes in and says, no, 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 I've known them all my life. I've known them longer than you. Um, right. And you have those kind of arguments, which is not good. Well, do you have recommendations for how often you should review this document and look at it again, make sure that's still where you are? Yeah, there's, there's no expiration date for the document. So it's, it's valid once you fill it out until you either revoke it or until you update it by filling out a new document. Uh, I know some people put it in their filing cabinet along with their tax files so that once a year, when they look at their taxes, they look at their advance directive, too, just as a trigger. Uh, but whether or not you do that, the most important thing is if you have any big changes in your life, uh, if there are any changes in your family, if, you, if your spouse has passed away, uh, if it's the person that you named as your health care agent passed away, uh, if you have a, a divorce or a legal separation, any of those things, uh, you should update your advance directive. If your health condition changes, if you have a new diagnosis, uh, you should update your document. Because although it's, it's always going to be valid until it's replaced, uh, you can imagine in a healthcare setting, if somebody has an advanced directive and they're in the hospital and doctors are looking at it and it's 10 years old and a family member comes in and they haven't seen it in 10 years, there's a lot of question about whether or not that still represents what the person would have wanted today. Good point. I got to so stop you. Make sure it's current. Got to stop you right there. We are flat out of time. Your website, agingwithdignity.org. That's right. You can get all the information about Five Wishes and how to get documents from that site, agingwithdignity.org. Well, I really appreciate you coming on, and at uh, some point we ought to get you on to talk more about Calcutta and uh, Mother Teresa. 
be happy to. You're as close as we have ever come to her. <laughs> Appreciate you coming on, Paul. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation. Sure. Paul Malley is the president of Aging with Dignity. Up next, speaking of dignity, we have a dignified debate uh, during Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. All of that coming your way right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal? To support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. Well, not that all of our programs aren't entertaining, fun, and informative, but Take 10 brings a special characteristic that uh, we really enjoy, which is Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist, expert on caregiving and addictions, and Carol Zerniel and I spin around a topic, and Take 10 is 10 minutes of talking about an interesting topic which Carol is going to toss out right now. Right now. So, Jamie... Um, yes, in, Carol. <laughs> in working with some families, um, it seems that sometimes money is the great motivator and decision maker of all things. So what do we do when we're working with a family that is more that that money really is, whether, you know, that it, it's valid or, or maybe they have more money than they think. But so many families are afraid to spend the money. Um, and sometimes that is in disregard for, you know, what might be in the best interest of the person that you're caring for. It's not what the needs of the person are. It's just money. You know, Carol, money has always been the biggest issue in terms of alcohol and drug treatment, which is my world, that um, – I used to be in the world of adolescence, and I would have families coming to me that had a huge amount of resources. Their child was dying of a chronic and terminal illness, uh, was being arrested left and right. And they would all come to me and say, no, but we have a college fund for him. We can't even go into that. And I said, if you don't go into it, your son will be dead, and you'll have a college fund for nobody. And then usually I could get their attention. I don't think it's a huge difference when I work with um, boomers, seniors, and caregivers. Money seems to be an issue that everybody has a different perspective on. In fact, if you will, caregivers, um, those who are taking care of their loved ones, both primary and long-distance caregivers, uh, that issue of money and legacy and wills and who gets what and what gets what and where are the dollars, nobody puts it next to, I shouldn't say nobody, but the majority don't put it next to the health and wellness of their loved one, the quality of life that still exists for their loved one. And that's a huge issue. 
Well, it is, and it can be, it's a tremendous barrier, um, cause great discord among family members. So, um, you know, I was talking to a family recently where you've got multiple siblings and two of them are let's spend the money and the other two are we don't need to. You know, all four are staring at, you know, the very elderly mother. Um, so, and, and I know end of life is, is a little bit different, but when you were working with the family, what kind of recommendations are there levers? What do we do, um, to try to get everybody on the same page or to maybe take money out of the equation and make it about what's best for the person? Well, listen, it's true. As far as I'm concerned, money is a clinical issue. It might be greenbacks. It might be coins. It might be bonds and stocks. But I see it all as clinical, and you, in your description, is truly correct. If you looked at the two people who don't, don't mind providing dollars and cents, who really are probably much more heart-centered or follow some loving-kindness piece and really want their loved one to spend what they need to spend to have high quality of life, I'm sure you're going to see a concept of positive psychology or happiness with them. Uh, this is a group that really does you know, the right thing because they, they feel a high need to allow their parents to live a wonderful life. When you look at the other two you described who really don't see money as an issue, a couple of things may be true. A, they may be poor, which is not necessarily the case. The beauty of seniors and getting seniors help is that you can get your, your, um, your, your money, if you will, at 59 and a half from your uh, 401k. Um, you have dollars and cents and bonds and trusts. But it's a clinical issue. Since it's a clinical issue, that's why I believe when money becomes an issue, you need to bring a third party in who is uh, you know, trained in gerontology and geriatric care who can facilitate what resources could everybody provide and how would that be equally sort of accepted among everyone. I hate to throw water on this, but not everybody has a 401K or bonds and trusts that they can cash out. You're so right, Ron. And, and one big thing is this. If you can't do it, you can't do it. But you can maybe give sweat equity, quote, unquote. But to your point, Ron, it, it's true. Uh, you know, you, often the loved one that we're dealing with literally has the 401K or does have stocks or does have dollars. And in this poor, heinous sort of environment of, of Medicare and Medicaid, we have to spend it down just so they can live in a, a skilled nursing facility, which is sad. But even that money becomes contentious because uh, you, the one that you described who doesn't have the 401K, who has little money for retirement, uh, they may be looking at the situation different from the others. But you can't give it away uh, to spend down uh, unless it's done several years before that time when they have to go into a Medicaid bed. I see people doing it fast and furiously now. You know, in, unfortunately, in senior care, not many people have a lot of information about this world. Um, obviously, Carol, the gerontologist, runs the NCOA, executive director of the foundation. She knows every subtle nuance here. But when you become a caregiver, it's like a two-by-four that hits you. And all of a sudden, they find out that Medicare only pays 100 days in a skilled nursing facility, and what am I going to do? I have seen families, unfortunately, and I think this goes to the dignity and respect of the loved one, bend down as fast as they possibly can just to qualify. Right. So there are different, you know, there are different mechanisms that you can use to spend down and qualify for Medicaid. But I think, you know, what's really helpful for families is to kind of have a black and white conversation about this where you do bring in somebody who understands 
um, elder law and elder finances and say, you know, this is a situation, you do have this much money, this is going to last this long, or, you know, you're really close to qualifying for Medicaid, um, and this is what you would do to go ahead and and get ready to qualify so that you kind of take the guessing out of it. Um, And then, and maybe thinking about, well, if I have to spend money on some residential care, what is it I'm not going to be spending money on, you know, in terms of that maybe you're giving up the car, you sell the car and some gas. And, and divesting of resources is never easy, but there are there may be resources that not everyone in the family is thinking about. And that's you a really, conversation uh, you should have, Jamie and Carol, uh, before, long before you actually need that conversation. Absolutely. And I think Carol's point is really well taken. I just did three months ago a seminar for the Virginia uh, elder care attorneys association and i have to tell you carol's right on target i would bring an elder care attorney and they truly can navigate everything quite well they're very 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 strong and comprehensive backgrounds around the system and geriatrics and also i would bring a skilled um financial advisor who deals with senior care um, these are two third parties but again and, and again and i must say this to your listeners it does sometimes become a clinical issue, which drives anxiety, drives depression, drives, you know, uh, stress. And so the geriatric care manager or the social worker who's trained in geriatric care also needs to be involved. This is not a time, I'm not saying the money to the loved one, but this is not a time to hold back on resources to help you get to a solution. Well, and I would say that because money more than anything else just about pushes people's buttons, it gets those emotions running high. That really is a situation where it's good to have, you know, someone, either your elder law attorney, your financial advisor, social worker, you know, somebody who is independent of the family because we, as families, sometimes we don't like to listen to each other. Huh. Um, and then, you know, somebody else, as Jamie has so often said, somebody else is, is the messenger um, and gives us the options. And that sometimes that's more believable. Caregivers can support the decision by a key licensed third party that's not doesn't have a dog in this hunt, if you will, and really look like heroes. And I, I agree entirely with how Carol just reframed it. Carol, you get the last word. Well, I you know I would just say you know all of us as caregivers we have to make tough decisions, and sometimes those decisions involve money. And so in thinking about dignity and death with dignity and living with dignity, let's put that conversation at the top of our thinking as we have the rest of the conversations. I like that. Dr. Jamie, thank you very much. Carol, thank you. This is Caregiver SOS On Air, Take 10, which comes to you at the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS programs. I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us on 930 AM, The Answer. And we come to you every week, Sundays at 6 in the afternoon. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. 
Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org.